Hi, I'm Debbie George Addis. Thanks so very much for tuning in to my show, America Can We Talk. Today we're going to hit three topics. One, the Texas GOP ruling class exposed. Number two, Bob Mueller speaks, the coup attempt continues. And third, Buttigieg's victim card mendacity. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And thanks so much again for tuning in to America Can We Talk. Well, first of all, I'll say these lovely things that you can see in the table. Uh, yesterday was my birthday, and I arrived at the studio today just a few minutes ago and had this lovely array of flowers, cupcakes, and uh, just beautiful things. So uh, thank you very much to the Real News PR and Real News Communication Network for this happy little birthday surprise. And yesterday, I missed doing my show, not because it was my birthday, but because we had Mother Nature get a little bit surly. We had tornado warnings in this area, and so... So uh, shut down the studio, keep everyone safe. Great to be back with you. Thanks so very much again for tuning in to America Can We Talk. We have something happening in Texas, but this really actually is relevant to elections and campaigns all around this country. And I want to tell you the story of Texas, what's happening here, and which is where I am, in the great state of Texas, and tell you how much it matters really to all of America. In Texas, we happen to have our state legislature only meets once every other year as compared with many states where it's kind of an ongoing thing like Congress is in Washington. But in Texas, it's a six-month session every other year. And so it's a really big deal during that six months. Everything that actually has to get passed has to be go through the process, get the right committee, get on the floor, and goes back and forth between the House and the Senate. And in Texas, we had a new speaker uh, in the House. We have a Republican majority in the House and the Senate in Texas, and we have a Republican governor. So people assume that Texas will likely be able to put forward fairly Republican-style legislation. Well, this past session was just ended this past Monday. The, uh, there was a new speaker of the House, and this is this, this uh, Texas GOP speaker. His name is Bonin, Dennis Bonin. It was his first time to serve as Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House is an enormous responsibility, and he essentially can control which pieces of legislation get to committees that will review the legislation, listen to input from constituents, amend, blah, blah, get it on the floor of the House. It's a very powerful role, the Speaker of the House. And on the Senate side, uh, there is a similar role, although that is conducted by the Lieutenant Governor in Texas. But back to the Texas House and what happened. So this legislative session, there were many, many conservative agenda items that did not move forward, did not get passed. I'm going to dedicate a show next week to talking about that. But today I want to talk about what Speaker Bonin said in an interview, I believe it was yesterday, related to this year and a half we have in between before the next Texas session has, uh, you know, comes up before the session two years from now. In between those two years, every single member of the Texas House will be up for re-election because they are two-year terms, unlike the Texas Senate, which is four-year terms. But the Texas House, every single member of the Texas House will be up for re-election. Bonin said, Speaker Bonin, Republican Speaker Bonin, announced in an interview yesterday that he is instituting a policy 
of banning members, and he means elected Democrat and Republican elected members of the Texas State House. He is instituting a policy banning members from engaging in electoral campaigns against each other, preventing them from endorsing, financially contributing, or otherwise assisting in races against incumbents. And he's not just saying this about the Republican members of the Texas State Legislature. It's not just the Republicans. He is the speaker of the whole House, meaning he's the speaker of, there's you know one speaker in the majority party gets to choose their speaker. So he's a Republican speaker, but he's speaker for all. He is putting in place a policy saying no members of the Texas House are permitted in this year and a half before the elections, before the next uh, Texas House meets in two years, can engage in campaigns on behalf of anyone challenging an incumbent, whether that incumbent is a Democrat or Republican. So say you're a Republican member of the Texas State House and you know of a great person, you'd love to have that person run and try to represent a district in Texas currently represented by a Democrat. So you might, in normal circumstances, as Republican elected officials say, yeah, I'm gonna get behind you know, Joe or Sue or whoever it is to try to get that person to challenge an incumbent Democrat and try to get that Republican, that, that seat to turn over from Democrat to Republican. This is very common. And even if, as a legislator, you don't get involved in, in, a, uh, in a race like that, people are always asking for your support, your advice, members of the Texas State Legislature naturally, because they are politically active, they're tuned into the Texas legislature, they're regularly asked to endorse, to contribute, to speak for candidates. Now, you may wonder what the power is that Bonin has to enforce this policy, because as they say, it can't take away Christmas, but he can make your life miserable in the Texas state legislature. He can hold back money from your reelection campaign. So he has tremendous power. Everyone in the Texas House knows this. And to be clear, this guy is trying to enforce this against even Democrats, who I'm going to guess don't really care that much what he thinks. This is on top of a statement this Bonin made just a few weeks ago, or just last week, essentially saying, mentioning some particular Democrat by name and saying, you know, it'd be a really great thing if the Texas legislature turns Democrat, this guy, whatever it was, he'd be a great speaker of the Texas House. What this says about the ruling class mentality is really the point of today's first five. Number one, this guy, one person, a speaker of the Texas House, is essentially deciding he knows better than every member of the Texas House, every Republican member, every Democrat member, every elected official in the Texas House, he knows better about whether or not they should get involved in somebody else's campaign. Now, he offered a reason. He said, you know, it gets very divisive, it gets tough. We have these, you know, elections, and we have members who are supporting uh, a primary opponent against some other member, or they're support, uh, supporting a Republican running to try to take a Democrat seat away. And it makes for acrimony, tension, and not the collegial spirit that people want to see in, among the legislators. So his argument is, it makes things rough when you get to the legislative session if people have to work together on legislation when they both know that in the off season between legislative sessions that a guy in their committee, a woman in their committee was actually supporting 
another person tried to take their job away. So what Speaker Bonin is saying, this is a ruling elitist, ruling class mindset. The number one is saying the ruling class knows better. All the club members, all the people who made it into the legislature, they're the club. Everybody else who didn't get elected or who hasn't yet run and who might want to run, everybody else is not part of the club. They're not to be welcomed to the club. They're not to be helped in getting into the club. He is deciding for the legislators in his in the entire Texas House that he knows better than they do whether the trade-off is worth it. Because some members might say, you know what, this particular guy on the other side, he's so bad, he's so obstreperous, he so opposes my agenda that I want to find someone to run against him. And, you, and if you are a legislator, you take the risk. You might jump into that race, you might help that other candidate, and that candidate loses. And you're back in the legislature next time with the same person there that you didn't like last time, the same person you tried to take out. Okay, welcome to being a grown-up. Welcome to being a politician. You know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. If you are so frightened by the idea of having to deal with a legislator in the session who you worked against in the off session, don't do it. No one's making the legislators do that. But this guy is deciding, this ruling class, elitist, we are the ruling class, we decide, he's deciding for all the other legislators that he knows better than they, the good, the ups and downs, you know, the pros and cons of getting involved in somebody else's campaign. This is, this is a rotten, horrible, un-American, un-Texan way, idea for this to have. And I so far have not heard legislators complaining about this. Another thing about what this policy is doing, it's really telling the grassroots the activists in both parties, on both sides of the aisle, is telling activists, buzz off. Shut up. Stop working to take out a club member. Stop hassling us. Leave us alone. We have our club here. You, you people out there in the, um, especially in the Republican side, the conservative, the grassroots types, they have been unhappy this whole session because the session didn't go very well for the conservative agenda. It didn't go well at all for the conservative agenda. So a lot of people have been talking off, you know, during the session online and social media about, you know, this person, that candidate, this elected official, maybe we should try to run someone against him. This speaker is taking the attitude, telling the grassroots, leave us alone. We are the rulers, you are the peasants, you are the people, you're the common people. Just be quiet. Let the ruling class rule. So this guy, Bond, this is his first session as speaker. And the speaker's race is always very controversial, very, very, uh, it's just a highly controversial process. There was a previous speaker here in Texas who was, you know, never, ever fulfilled the conservative agenda. And so it was a big, big deal to finally get a new speaker in. And I have yet to hear any elected Republicans in the Texas House speak up and saying, you know what, Speaker Bonin, you're wrong. This is a wrong thing for you to say. It's a wrong thing for you to do. I have yet to hear that. I hope I do. I hope I hear some leadership, some leaders in the Republican House saying, you don't tell us whether we can do this. And one last fact, and I'll wrap up the first five, is this. In other legislative, session, other legislative sessions, when Governor Abbott, our Republican governor, when other people, you know, power brokers in the Republican Party in Texas have not liked the conduct of an elected Republican in the House or the Senate, 
the powers that be, the GOP, the governor, the Republican Party, they get behind challengers to elected officials all the time. They say, you know what, this guy, this person, man or woman, you know, they're off the reservation, they're not following the deal Republicans are supposed to follow. So there is history for people getting behind challenging an incumbent. This guy, one session, power's gone to his head, and he is saying no one in this entire Texas House better dare, better dare challenge an incumbent. They all get to stay because they're in the club. This is ruling class elitism. It is ugly. It is wrong. And I'm very much hoping to hear some voices on the Republican and, frankly, on the Democrat side saying, you can't tell us that. You can't decide for us. I hope so because what you're seeing here, this little microcosm example I gave you, this is what happens in Washington all the time. You have this circling of the wagons around incumbent politicians, Democrat and Republican, where you have politicians clearly not listening to their voters, not following the, the what they promise they do in their campaigns, where you have people trying to work in the states to remove these senators, remove these elected officials and other uh, House members in the U.S. Congress, and you have this ruling class elitism clobbering, over, clobbering the grassroots, really clobbering the voters over the head, saying, be quiet and go home now, because we get to tell you who's in charge around here. And that, my friends, is today's First Five. I'm going to turn and talk to you about this. Uh, you probably all saw there was a, uh, there were remarks, a, a press conference by Bob Mueller, the now resigned member of the FBI, but the uh, Bob Mueller, who was the you know the head of the investigation, the Spygate investigation, there was a a, a comment, a, um, remarks by him, and this just warrants so much attention. I will tell you next week. I'm going to dive into where we are in terms of digging out the truth from the FBI for the time period prior to. The uh, dossier, the Russian, you know, the, the uh, FISA warrant, court warrants, the dossier, the whole uh, Mueller investigation thing. We are going to talk next week about what happened prior to that, starting in 2016, and how this is really what Attorney General Barr is digging into and making those people very, very nervous because he realizes, Barr, in my view, Barr realizes that the FBI abused its power. The Obama administration, very high-level people in that administration, were using the NSA database to gather information against their political enemies unlawfully, unethically, and not for the, the purpose for which that database was created. This was ongoing, and this is what really Mueller and others are worried Barr is going to get to. But Barr's comments today, he uh, held a press conference. I want to start with what he had to say. Barr was... Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I want to start with uh, Mueller, rather. What Mueller had to say this morning, um, he, he started out first basically saying why he's making a statement and announcing he's resigning. But here is the first little clip we have of Bob Mueller. Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. The appointment order directed the office to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This included investigating any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Now, I have not spoken publicly during our investigation. I'm speaking out today because our investigation is complete. 
The Attorney General has made the report on our investigation largely public. We are formally closing the Special Counsel's Office, and as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to return to private life. The first volume of the report details numerous efforts emanating from Russia to influence the election. This volume includes a discussion of the Trump campaign's response to this activity, as well as our conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. Okay, folks, so you realize again, on the Mueller investigation, two pieces of it. One was this alleged collusion, the conspiracy uh, theory about uh, the Trump campaign and the Russians. And basically, you know, what he concludes there with is this idea, there's insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. He cannot bring himself to say, we could find no evidence of a conspiracy. There was no collusion. I mean, he was forced in, or Trump has been making that conclusion for him. But what Bob Mueller is doing in this press conference and the remarks we're about to play next is imploring, imploring the U.S. House to bring impeachment proceedings. He goes on, Mueller goes on after this very, you know, uh, you know, damning the faint praise kind of thing where he's just saying there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. Then he got into talking about their, their uh, investigation related to obstruction. Again, Bob Mueller. And in the second volume, the report describes the results and analysis of our obstruction of justice investigation involving the president. And as set forth in the report after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents available. Among other things, that evidence could be used if there were co-conspirators who could be charged now. And second, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Okay, folks, you, you have to realize what he's saying. Mueller is begging the Democrat-controlled U.S. House to bring impeachment proceedings against President Trump. There's so much to take apart and, and just unpack about this statement. It's really important to understand what a nasty, malicious, ugly, ugly thing Mueller did in those remarks this morning, or, I guess, or yesterday morning, this morning, whenever it was. First, he essentially says... Well, we couldn't charge President Trump because you can't charge a sitting president with a crime. So he's saying maybe he, Mueller and the team, found enough to prosecute Trump, to justify prosecuting President Trump, but they just couldn't do it because, after all, you can't prosecute a, a sitting president. And this is the, the, on the advice of the Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC. 
understand that Mueller told Attorney General Barr at least three times, at least three times, that his decision not to charge President Trump with a crime had nothing to do with the Office of Legal Counsel opinion about whether or not a sitting president can be charged with a crime. Mueller told Barr that three times, that their decision in the Mueller report not to charge President Trump with something was not in any way based on the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that you can't charge a sitting president. So now he's in front of the camera saying, now, I mean, he's implying the entire reason they did not bring something forward against President Trump was because uh, they really weren't allowed to do that. And so he's saying, he goes on to say, so there are other remedies, other remedies. In fact, he also goes out of his way to say, you know, we didn't say he didn't commit a crime. In fact, he said, I, I, I thought if we, um, if we had thought he didn't commit a crime, he would have said so. So he is, after $35 million, two years, 20 lawyers, hundreds and hundreds of subpoenas, thousands of hours of depositions, can't find a darn thing, simply cannot let this go. If Mueller, if you need any further proof, Mueller is part of this deep state determination to take President Trump out, it is this press conference. It is this willingness of Mueller to plant seeds for the House members, plant, take statements they can extrapolate. And of course, all the usual Trump-hating Democrats in the U.S. House have statements out and tweets out and clips out saying, yeah, man, you know, you see, Mueller told us. I mean, he, he's practically saying he couldn't, he couldn't clear President Trump. This is a guy who had all the powers of the federal government at his disposal and used two years of time, could clearly could have released every bit of evidence he found and he couldn't find any but it's not good enough for him it's not good enough for Mueller he's still finding a way to entice to encourage the US Congress to bring impeachment proceedings against President Trump despite and, and trying to excuse his his failure to, to discover anything that would justify the criminal charges against President Trump by saying, well, the Office of Legal Counsel said that we can't do that. And this, so this is why, by the way, Barr, that's why Barr went out and said when he summarized Mueller's report, essentially, you know, um, they didn't find anything in which to bring it. They didn't find conspiracy. They just didn't find enough. And, you know, it's the kind of thing I have to tell you, when you think about our legal system, the kind of thing a prosecutor should be able to say, and I'm going to tell you what Alan Dershowitz said in a moment, but what a prosecutor should be able to say, if you investigate and investigate and investigate and investigate, because, you know, you're a prosecutor, you think, you know, so-and-so committed a bank robbery, you committed a murder or something really bad, and you look and you look and you look and you look, and there's nothing there. When you go to the state, to the public to make a statement, and you make a statement like Mueller did, what you're really trying to say is, we still think he did it. We still think he's a bad guy. We just can't quite find the way to, uh, to prove that. We, we couldn't quite find it. This, he was not exonerated, is not a legal standard in our country, nor should it be. In fact, there was a piece out by Alan Dershowitz, who is the you know, famous attorney um, and, and 
former uh, liberal, he's, he's been out um, throughout this whole investigative process essentially arguing about uh, the fact that, uh, that the entire investigation just fails to follow basic standards of justice in our country, basic standards of laws. He's been, of law. He's been critical of the FBI, the Department of Justice, of Comey, of, of Mueller, of all of them. Basically, Alan Dershowitz saying this is such a, an, an affront to our justice system, what they are trying to do to President Trump. So Dershowitz is out with a piece today. In fact, anything I talk about in the show, you can go find the articles I'm talking about going to our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, go down, list of links. You can find a link to this story and all the stories I'm talking about. But to really clear what Dershowitz is saying about how bad Mueller is, in fact, the title of Dershowitz's article is Shame on Robert Mueller for Exceeding exceeding his role and his basic point is back at the time in fact he makes reference to the time that when the FBI was investigating Hillary Clinton and the email thing and the FBI just could not um, bring itself to charge her to point out she violated federal law and the way she set up her private email server endangered national security secrets but Comey who is the FBI their investigator they're not the DOJ they're not the prosecutor but he comes out and says you know, this is a few years ago now came out and said you know no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute the you know, Hillary Clinton in these circumstances so he's basically exonerated her when it's not his role it wasn't Comey's role Dershowitz starts his article with that reminding us that happened and they're saying what Mueller did in that little clip you just saw was far, far worse, was worse than what, than what Comey did exonerating Hillary. What Mueller did today was egregious, according to uh, Alan Dershowitz. Um, and he just says, until today, this is Dershowitz. I have defended Mueller against the accusations that he is a partisan. I did not believe that he personally favored either the Democrats or the Republicans or had a point of view on whether Trump should be impeached. But I have now changed my mind. This is Alan Dershowitz speaking. I have now changed my mind by putting his thumb, indeed his elbow, on the scale of justice in favor of impeachment based on obstruction of justice. Mueller has revealed his partisan bias. He has distorted the critical role of a prosecutor in our justice system. And again, I want to remind you, because there was no, no collusion, no conspiracy between Trump and the Russians, the whole idea of obstructing justice is a farce to start with. And what, by the way, what the uh, investigators, the Mueller team, was really trying to point to as obstruction of justice was a conversation in the Oval Office about including President Trump, about whether he should fire Mueller. He wanted to fire Mueller. Who wouldn't want to fire Mueller in Trump's position? But McGahn, his attorney, and others just talked him out. It's not, not a good idea, probably not politically wise. Trump had the, the legal constitutional right to fire Mueller. That idea that Trump discusses the question of whether he should fire Mueller is what the Mueller team is hanging their hat on as obstruction that Trump dared to consider that this witch hunt against him was hurting his presidency, was, was evil, was wrong, was unjustified, and he wanted to do something about it. What they're really saying is how dare President Trump defend himself? 
How dare President Trump be outraged? How dare he point out that we have ruined or tried to ruin the first two years of his presidency on a fake witch on a cooked up dossier, cooked up by his political opponents, used unlawfully to get warrants to continue spying on his campaign and Trump had the nerve to be upset about that? That's what they're calling obstruction. It's true lunacy, which leads to what President Trump had to say today. Uh, he, uh, leaving the White House, made some remarks, as he often does, he's scooting out the door to get on. Actually, he was flying out to Colorado to make a state, to uh, give the graduation, uh, the commencement speech at the Air Force Academy. He had a few remarks uh, about Mueller's speech this morning, and here's just a little clip of Trump. If you look, this was all about Russia, Russia, Russia. They don't talk about Russia anymore because it turned out to be a hoax. It was all a hoax. And then they say, gee, he fought back. Isn't that terrible? He fought back. Of course I fight back because it was a false accusation, a totally false accusation. And it's a disgrace. And it's a very, it's a very sad period for this country. And I think in the end, I will consider what's happening now to be one of my greatest achievements exposing this corruption. I don't see how they can because they're possibly allowed, although I can't imagine the courts allowing it. I've never gone into it. I never thought that would even be possible to be using that word. To me, it's a dirty word, the word impeach. It's a dirty, filthy, disgusting word. And it had nothing to do with me. So I don't think so because there was no crime. You know, it's high crimes and, not with or or. It's high crimes and misdemeanors. There was no high crime and there was no misdemeanor. So how do you impeach based on that? And it came out that there was nothing to do with Russia. The whole thing is a scam. It's, one of, it's a giant presidential harassment. And honestly, I hope it goes down as one of my greatest achievements because I've exposed corruption. I've exposed corruption like nobody knew existed. Okay, you, this is why Trump supporters love this guy because he, you know, in fact, I saw some of the commentary right after uh, President Trump's remarks this morning, people saying, oh my gosh, he just, he shouldn't talk that way. He should be genteel. He should be polite. You know, you've been falsely accused for two years of something that just your, your political enemies made up. And you finally, the public sees the Mueller report, they realize there was no collusion, they realize that the entire thing was cooked up, he was framed. I don't even like the word witch hunt anymore, because a witch hunt has, even hoax has kind of a, hoax especially has like a playful, you know, a big hoax, we duped him into showing up at the restaurant and it was a, a surprise party or something. This was a frame up. This was a coup attempt. This was an effort to remove the duly elected president because they don't like him because he ran on draining the swamp, and they are the swamp, because he ran on returning the power in this country to the people and to responding to what the people want instead of the ruling class elite wants to do. So back to Trump, this whole idea that he's a little bit upset and that he actually had to put up with this for two years and that somehow they're still asking, well, what about impeachment? They could impeach you, you know, and, and over obstruction, which basically means because he stood up for himself. In fact, there was a great, a quick, I want to play a quick, I, I believe Matt, my wonderful producer, has this little uh, comic cartoon thing that was, I, I just think this is hilarious. This is Mueller saying, and he did talk about people being, um, you know, 
innocent until they're proven guilty. But this little thing is saying, not not guilty until proven innocent. He's passing the torch of the witch hunt over to, and if you can't tell on the right-hand side, that's uh, Nadler, Gerald Nadler from New York, the just relentless knit pest, you know, mosquito of a person pestering all the time to get President Trump. So basically the cartoon's saying, you know, they're just out of their minds with the idea that this whole effort to take him down through the frame up is falling apart. And so Mueller is passing the torch to now. They're saying, come on, let's get going with now. Now maybe we can uh, bring this guy down through impeachment. These are extraordinary times, uh, people. They really, really are in terms of what we are going to demand of our elected officials, we're going to demand of our justice system, or we're going to demand of Attorney General Barr, who's really, really now in the hot seat. He is friends with Mueller. They have been through a lot. They are pals. They have worked together in different ways for decades. So Barr has the job of digging in, in the FBI, in Department of Justice, understanding who cooked up this frame up, who cooked up this coup, who committed crimes along the way, and Mueller is hoping somehow that that won't happen. And Mueller, by the way, just to give you a little hint for next week, a little tease of this story, Mueller, who ran the investigation, who was in charge of it, he was in the middle, in the middle of this whole inside the DOJ, inside the FBI, pinging the NSA database, unlawfully he was among the early people cooking this up and now he's the one that gets to investigate and then the one still trying to get rid of trump through this uh passing the torch to uh, nadler and the impeachment folks okay anyway you, you can't you, you can't hardly make this stuff up okay and that my friends is the situation with Mueller uh in washington today i'm gonna turn and the last story today i want to turn to i want to talk about this um presidential candidate uh, Pete Buttigieg and you likely know he is the uh, former in fact he might still be the mayor of of, um, of South Bend Indiana but he's running uh, on the Democrat ticket uh, for president he's running to become that he wants to get the Democrat nomination for president I think they're at 23 24 candidates so it's a huge field right now but one thing that Buttigieg has been doing and I haven't commented on it yet but I, I just couldn't resist planting this seed to ask you to think about this idea so Buttigieg, Buttigieg is gay. He has a, a husband. And so he and his husband are frequently the topic of uh, commentary and frequently the topic of Buttigieg's remarks. He is a very, he's not just, uh, he, he is uh, gay and I believe married to, to uh, this gentleman named Chasten, C-H-A-S-T-E-N, is Buttigieg's um, husband. Chasten um, used to be uh, Glesman and now it's um, Buttigieg. But what has come out I wanted to share with you is this. I have sensed many times in listening to Buttigieg speak that he is using the, uh, his, his lifestyle, his being gay, as a victim card. He's playing the victim card. He's being the victim. He is describing his life as being a victim and his life with this man who is now his husband. And so part of what he is doing and what the Washington Post covered was attempting to characterize uh, Buttigieg's husband. Again, his name is Chasten. In fact, Chasten, I believe, took Buttigieg's last name, so it's Chasten Buttigieg. But in any case, the Washington Post ran stories talking about how Chasten, as a gay young man, was, uh, he was actually um, a homeless, described by the Washington Post, a homeless, 
community college student, a Starbucks, Starbucks barista, that his parents, he's a child who grew up with nothing, that his parents kicked him out of the house when he announced he was gay, that his family has ignored him, his family has turned against him, they won't talk to him since he's announced that he's gay. This is what the Washington Post is recounting as the life story of Chastin Buttigieg. And Chastin Buttigieg has a brother who is a Christian pastor, a Christian pastor named Ryan Glesman, a 34-year-old pastor, small town church in Michigan, and this brother gave an interview to the Washington Examiner. And the brother, this Christian pastor brother, really, really blasted Buttigieg for the what he is calling lies the Buttigieg campaign is telling about this the lifestyle, this life in which Buttigieg's husband Chaston grew up. What happened, once those Washington Post stories ran that his family kicked him out and his brothers wouldn't speak to him and he was homeless, you know, all this all this depiction, um, this uh, pastor brother started to get hate mail and threats and attacks on social media. How dare you pick on Chaston? How could you be so mean? How could you be so intolerant? Christian intolerance, blah, blah, blah. So this guy, Ryan, the pastor brother of Bujic's husband, gave an interview and said basically this. Number one, no one was surprised in our family. No, sh no one was shocked when Chaston came out as gay. This was not news. I mean, it was kind of something they had implicitly understood. Number two, he, Ryan, this brother, has been very generous toward Chaston and inclusive toward Chaston his, and Chaston's past boyfriends, other men that Chaston brought into his life. Ryan has included in their family that he, this pastor brother, Ryan, uh, Ryan Glesman, went to a baseball game just like two years ago with Chaston and Pete Buttigieg. He, point is, he socializes with them. The family did not kick him out. Chaston decided he was having a troubled time. He moved away from the family, but the family didn't kick him out. He, this pastor, saying, we include him. We have, and he said, just saw him a year ago at the grandmother's funeral. They hugged, they talked at the grandmother's funeral. The point is, this whole victim card mentality is being played up by Pete Buttigieg for political purposes, for the purposes of his political campaign. Because on the left, being a victim makes you more electable. It is an appealing way to present yourself to the Democrat electorate, to say, well, I'm a victim. I can't believe how much of a victim I am. So this, this, and he also said, what are they talking about? It grew up in poverty. The kid had a, he had a car, he had car insurance, he had a cell phone. He said, it's not even true that they, they were poor. They were normal. I don't know if he uses middle class or lower middle class family, but they were not poor. But the entire depiction of Chaston, the husband of Buttigieg, of being poor, being kicked by, out by his family, being chastised, being excluded, all false. Now this pastor does say he'd never vote for Buttigieg because he doesn't believe what the Democrat stands for, doesn't like his position on border security, doesn't like his position on the Supreme Court justices, doesn't like a lot of his views. And this brother, Chaston, even this, this brother, Ryan Glesman, even said, you know, I'm a Christian pastor, so yes, uh, you know, I, I embrace traditional biblical views related to marriage. Okay, I do, but I still love my brother, I, I still love my family, I still love my friends. I do not reject any of them.
So this idea, and this is kind of closing on this point before I want to get to our, uh, our uh, story I'd like to tell you about the end, I tell you about why it all matters to you. This effort of Pete Buttigieg to play the victim card as a gay man. In fact, it's been, my, I say I don't like other comments he's made. He does this in attacking, Pete Buttigieg does this, in attacking Vice President Pence. Pence is a, was the governor of Indiana at the time that Pete Buttigieg was and is the mayor of Fort Bend. They know each other. They've worked together. They don't agree on policy all the time, but they've worked together. They are, they, he has been friendly toward him. They have been political allies working together. Not in the same political party, but in the same state working on things. The point is, it is the intolerance, the vitriol, is effusing from Pete Buttigieg's mouth. The intolerance, the, the vitriol, the name-calling is coming out of Buttigieg, not out of Mike Pence. But Mike Pence, every time he tries to make a speech, he has to get this idiotic criticism by Buttigieg of intolerance and meanness and all these other words that Buttigieg throws out. He's trying to play the victim card, and it's wrong. It is dishonest. I am not saying that it's easy to be gay in America. I understand that, and, and most people I know have people in their families, among their close friends, their business colleagues. All of us have connections and contacts with people who live the gay lifestyle and who are maybe married to someone. We all have this you know, social contacts that way. But the left tries to say, you either 1,000% embrace everything the LGBTQ agenda pushes, or you're a hater. You embrace same-sex marriage in the same way as, other mar as, as traditional marriage, or else you're a bigoted hater and homophobe. But the fact is, there aren't just those two choices. You can be a Christian American who believes in the biblical description of marriage, and still treats your fellow man with respect, with dignity, with fairness, that you understand they have the right as adults to live their lives in the way they choose and to, and and to not have that lifestyle be perpetually attacked. There is intolerance on both sides on this. There is intolerance on the Christian right. Some of the extreme vitriol against same-sex marriage is, you know, it, it can be very troubling and off-putting. But the vitriol coming out of the American left is just as angry, just as intolerant. In fact, the, to the intolerance problem on this issue, the intolerance problem lives on the American left, lives on, lives on the Buttigieg side of things where nobody can say anything that they don't agree with related to marriage without being attacked as homophobic. And we can't move forward in the, with, this, with, with this distinction. We can't move forward with that attitude coming from the left. It's the same attitude the LGBTQ advocates have with respect to trans, transgenderism, with respect to drag queens do, doing story hour for kindergartners in public libraries. The attitude of you must accept everything advocated for by the LGBTQ agenda or else you're a homophobic hater. And this is not okay in America. This is not, there's is no way to get to peaceful coexistence. There's no way to get to a peaceful society if the left is telling us you have to agree with everything we say, no exceptions allowed. 
These are tough issues. I know these are tough issues to talk about. But when Buttigieg plays the victim card, and he plays it with mendacity, which means dishonesty. He is not telling the truth about his husband's life, his husband's family, his husband's, uh, how he was treated by his family, what their lifestyle was growing up like. He's not telling the truth, and he's asking for your vote based on those kind of lies. And now I want to turn to the very few minutes we have left in the show today. I love doing the end of the show, talking about why the stories I talk about matter to you. First, back to the first story from today. The ruling class and GOP in Texas exposed. This Texas Speaker of the House, Bonin, he is valuing incumbent protection and comfort dealing with each other in the legislature over respecting the will of the people and the vigorous debate of ideas in campaigns. This is ruling class elitism. There's no place for that in Texas or in America. And this is a path that's gonna hurt the GOP. It's a path to blue state Texas. Next slide, please. Mueller continuing the coup. Mueller's conference today was just part of the ongoing coup, part of the ongoing frame up. Mueller, Mueller's was an unobstructed investigation into a crime that never happened. There was no collusion, there was no conspiracy. Not only did the crime not occur, but the evidence is now accumulating to show the crime was itself manufactured by the CIA, Department of Justice, FBI. It was a frame up. Mueller was in the middle of it. Next on Mueller, why he's, this is continuing the coup, why it matters. He promoted impeachment of Trump in that, those remarks we heard today. Despite agreeing, there's no collusion. This is the coup continued. Mueller's conduct, conduct, his words, is the coup continued. And also he announced today, we didn't even get this, he announced he's not going to testify. That, you know, I'm done, everything I have to say is in my report, I'm done talking. He doesn't get to decide that. Now, the House is not going to make him testify because the Democrats run it, and apparently the Senate isn't either, but we cannot let Mueller just say, I've done my job, I've done the report, we're done, no more talking, you can't talk to me. Accountability for the corruption inside the FBI can't happen unless we hear from Mueller. That accountability has to happen. And last, on Buttigieg's mendacity, why it matters to you. Buttigieg is playing the victim card. He and his husband were not ostracized by, the fam by family members and claiming they were feeds the left's false narrative. He's doing the same thing to Vice President Pence. The very few Americans or Christians that hold hateful attitudes, that there is, it is very few Americans or Christians who hold the hateful, hateful attitudes that the left screams about all the time. But claiming to be a victim of hate, it actually hurts our nation's fabric and our culture. Voters should not reward Buttigieg, Buttigieg is how you say his name. Voters should not reward Buttigieg's mendacity on this issue. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I'd love if you would like my page on Facebook, share this show, subscribe on YouTube, email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com, and tune in every day where I could, because Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, because we here I always talk truth about America, and America matters. Talk to you Monday. Can we talk truth about America? Can you